Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Later on in today's show, I'll be sharing a bit about myself, the show, and what we hope to accomplish by having these conversations. The first segment each week will be insights into the military mind. I'll be talking about different aspects of mental health, wellness, and military psychology. A brief explanation of why might help with a fuller explanation to come later. I'm an Army veteran and a clinical mental health counselor. As I've been working in mental health with service members, veterans, and their families after my retirement, I found that it's necessary to help people understand more about the psychology of the military mind. If you served in the military, regardless of when, where, how long, or how you left, you're a member of a unique group of individuals who hold a common set of values, like honor, integrity, loyalty, service. If you're a family of a service member, spouse, parent, sibling, significant other, then you served in a different way, but you served all the same. This show is going to be focused on providing service members, veterans, their family members, and interested members of the community with the awareness around all aspects of military mental health. Our intent is not only to have real and meaningful discussions about mental health and wellness, but to support and inspire veterans to be able to use the strengths that they gained in the military to make a positive impact on their community in whatever way they want to do so. I talk a lot about changing the way that we think about military and veteran mental health. When I do, I get a variety of responses. These include stigma. The military community doesn't want to talk about mental health. They think it makes them weak. They include dismissal. Veterans don't need therapy. They just need to get on with their lives. Sometimes I hear, but why military mental health? Why not mental health in general? You know it's a problem for everyone. And that's true. It is a widespread concern. Much of what you hear on this show can and does apply to mental health in general. Our capacity for stress, the need for awareness, the methods used to intervene when a veteran is considering taking their own life are the same methods that we should use for anybody. The difference in talking about military and veteran mental health is that this population experienced a lifestyle that is increasingly unique in modern society. An immersion in that lifestyle has come with certain psychological advantages and challenges that are also unique. The fact that the military is a microcosm of society means that the solutions that work for the military and veteran population could work for the population at large. This goes for employment, homelessness, and yes, mental health. The stigma against seeking mental health is strong in the military population. If we figure out how to overcome stigma in our nation's service members, then perhaps that message and method can be applied to other areas. First responders, at-risk youth, domestic violence survivors. Yes, each of these are important and we should address them all. If we wait for one solution to apply to all of them, however, we're going to be waiting for a long time. A message should also be appropriate for the audience. A universal solution doesn't make the impact that it once did, if it did at all. The days of a single message for all people are long gone. 
We need a message and a way of spreading that message that is specific to the audience. While the interventions that are effective for veterans are also effective for at-risk youth, the way that we present those interventions are not. The ability to adapt our message to an audience is necessary when we're trying to sell books or shoes. It's also necessary when we're trying to reduce the stigma against seeking mental health services. So join me each week as we talk about mental health for the military-affiliated population. We may say some things that surprise you, confuse you, or start you thinking about things in a different way. For this episode, I'd like to talk about the elephant in the room, starting off talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. When people think about the military and mental health, the first thing that comes to mind is PTSD. There's been much discussion regarding post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans in the past 30 to 40 years, and rightly so. It is a very real condition that has a significant impact on the daily life of veterans, their families, and the community. There are some misconceptions about PTSD, however. It's become so widely known that much of society believes that any veteran who's been to combat must have PTSD, but also that service members or veterans who have not been to combat can't have PTSD. The situation is much more complicated than that. The fact is, is that the number of service members or veterans that develop diagnosable post-traumatic stress disorder is lower than many people believe. Research indicates that only between 10 and 20% of service members exposed to traumatic events meet the clinical criteria for PTSD. Perhaps this information will help you increase your awareness of what PTSD is and what it isn't. Before I talk about the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, I would first like to take a few minutes to talk about the history behind the condition. While it has become common but often misunderstood knowledge, it has only relatively recently been identified as a psychological condition. Descriptions of symptoms of PTSD have been present and written in oral histories for centuries, dating back to some of the earliest records of combat. In the current era, it's been described as soldier's heart during the Civil War, shell shock during World War I, battle fatigue or combat stress reaction in World War II, or post-Vietnam syndrome in the 70s. It wasn't until 1981 that the unique criteria that characterized the condition was first identified as post-traumatic stress disorder. Since that time, the understanding of the condition has changed. At first, it was considered an anxiety disorder, but now it's characterized as a separate category. There's also disagreement about whether or not it's a disorder. The concept of dropping the D and just describing it as post-traumatic stress, or referring to it as PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. Some of the arguments against using the term disorder is that it is stigmatizing. Service members and veterans will avoid seeking help for a disorder because nobody wants to seem weak or broken. There's a sense that veterans may feel more willing to discuss it if it's described as an injury, like traumatic brain injury. For today's discussion, however, I am going to approach it from the clinical diagnostic perspective and refer to it as a disorder. PTSD goes beyond the natural reaction to a traumatic event and requires a very specific set of circumstances in order to meet the diagnostic criteria for the disorder. It's natural for people to experience a stressful reaction to trauma. PTSD is a situation that goes beyond that natural reaction. The veteran must be demonstrating behaviors related to four separate areas, intrusion, avoidance, negative alterations in thoughts and emotions, and alterations in arousals and reactions. The specific criteria listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, 5th edition, are First, a traumatic stressor must be present. A veteran must have been exposed to death, threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. They must have experienced it directly, witnessed it, heard about it happening to a close friend in clear detail, or have been repeatedly exposed to the results of traumatic events in the course of their duties. This does not need to have happened in combat. Military service members who were deployed to New Orleans in response to Hurricane Katrina were required to recover flood victims and have struggled with recovery. 
While deployed to Iraq, my unit had the responsibility of recovering battle-damaged vehicles to include recovering their fellow soldiers. One young soldier who had this task, by the time we reached the halfway point of our deployment, had recovered more human remains than he had years on this earth. That's another aspect that makes PTSD in service members and veterans unique. It is a result of not just one traumatic event, but a series of traumatic events over a deployment or even over several different situations. What doesn't qualify as trauma are things that don't have this criteria. So just having a difficult experience or having a hard time with something does not meet the diagnostic criteria for trauma as it relates to PTSD. That doesn't mean that there aren't other diagnosable conditions that occur. But one of the things that makes PTSD very specific is that there must be a clear traumatic stressor that one experienced. As you can tell by this criteria, there's no mention of how the trauma is experienced. Again, when PTSD is mentioned in the context of the military, the assumption is that PTSD is the result of the exposure to combat. But combat exposure is not the only source of trauma exposure. Other common causes for PTSD are vehicle accidents and physical or sexual assaults, especially if threatened or actual death is a possibility. Other less known causes for PTSD include natural disasters such as wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes, or even certain chronic illnesses that would be likely to have resulted in death. Second, the veteran must persistently re-experience the traumatic event. This includes unwanted intrusive memories, nightmares, dissociating or zoning out, experiencing distress after exposure to reminders of the event, or having an obvious physical reaction after exposure to something that reminds them of the trauma. These triggers can and often do include those things that people expect, loud heavy noises that remind a veteran of an explosive blast, quick sharp noises that remind us of gunfire, or large crowds of people. They can also include things that are not expected, the full moon for example. When a veteran was on a patrol in combat, it was highly unlikely that the enemy had night vision capability. Therefore, when the full moon was out and the night was brighter, there was greater danger. Turning that response off when we have to let the dogs out when it's a full moon is very difficult. Smells, such as barbecuing or events, like stopping at a stoplight, or even something as seemingly innocuous as the shadows of a cloud on a mountainside can cause a veteran to start thinking about their combat experiences and re-experiencing them in a traumatic way. An individual could have been exposed to trauma, experience these traumatic things, but if they're not experiencing vivid re-experiencing situations, then it's not necessarily post-traumatic stress disorder. Third, the veteran must experience purposeful avoidance of the things that cause these reactions. We stop going to places and doing things that remind us of our experiences. The veteran who experienced multiple IAD attacks may stop driving altogether. They may stop going to family gatherings and concerts, even if they enjoyed those things prior to experiencing trauma. This purposeful avoidance also leads to veterans engaging in activities that numb the reactions, substance use, for example, anything that they can do to avoid feeling what they're feeling. Fourth, the veteran must experience negative changes in their thoughts and moods. They think bad things about themselves. I am to blame for what happened. I am a monster for the things that I did. They think bad things about the world. I am not safe here. No one can understand what I did. They experience diminished interest in things that pleased them before. They feel alienated, cut off, misunderstood, and experience an inability to feel positive emotions. The difficult thing with these thoughts is, once the veteran starts to think this way, they avoid any type of activity that could disprove these thoughts. The veteran must also experience behavioral changes, increasingly irritable or aggressive behavior, self-destructive or reckless behavior, hypervigilance, exaggerated startle response, difficulty concentrating or sleeping. These are all changes in behavior that veterans commonly experience. Many of us, upon return from combat, are seeking to continue to experience the thrill that we got while we were deployed. 
If we're not able to, then we get frustrated or irritable and angry. Further criteria is that these symptoms must persist more than a month. These things can be a very natural reaction to trauma. So for example, for a couple of weeks after a vehicle accident, you may experience some of these things. There may be some intrusive memories. There may be some avoidance. There may be some reminders. But if it doesn't go away, if these persist for longer than a month, that's when it becomes a diagnosable condition. Each of these things are typical reactions to stress, but for a diagnosis for PTSD, they must be ongoing, have a significant impact on their social or occupational functioning, and must not be due to some other cause like medication, substance use, or illness. For a veteran to quote-unquote have PTSD, at least one and sometimes several criteria in each of these areas must be met. Another thing that you might notice about the criteria here is that there is no time frame specified for when symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder may appear. There's a particular type of PTSD called late-onset PTSD. This occurs when an individual has experienced exposure to trauma, has not displayed any of the symptoms, but then begins to think and behave in such a way as to meet this diagnostic criteria. There was a research study conducted in the 90s that looked at Holocaust survivors, many of them in their 70s and 80s. After their ordeal, they had built families, made careers, and only recently started to develop the indications that I just described. The research showed that there were several reasons for this. As we age and retire for work, we find that we have much more free time on our hands and start reflecting over things in our lives. Another natural result of aging is that we start to lose the support system of those closest to us. Children and grandchildren live busy lives and siblings, parents, and friends are passing away. Isolation is one condition that can make things worse for post-traumatic stress disorder. And finally, the natural cognitive decline and neurological breakdown that occurs with age contributed to the development of the condition. So it's important to understand it could be years, even decades, between the traumatic event and the development of PTSD. Just because a veteran doesn't meet these criteria, however, doesn't mean that they're not struggling. This isn't a black and white, up or down categorization. The veteran may experience some of these at one point and others at a different point. That doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong with them, and it also doesn't mean they're crazy. Another thing about post-traumatic stress disorder that isn't widely known is that there is a neurological basis for this condition. There are actual changes in brain function and structure that occur with prolonged stress reaction to traumatic events. There's a concept called neuroplasticity, which is our brain's ability to adapt and change the way the brain cells function and are connected to each other. And neuroplasticity occurs regardless of whether or not the way of thinking is positive or negative. The good news is that there is a number of interventions that reduce these symptoms and resolve the negative impact of post-traumatic stress disorder. There are ways that individuals can process the trauma that they experience so that they no longer have to avoid reminders of the event, or if they do recall the event, the intense emotions associated with the event are not present. Counterintuitively, avoiding addressing these symptoms makes them worse. Directly addressing the memories of the traumatic event can make things better. We must always ensure, however, that these type of things are done with a licensed clinical mental health professional to ensure that there's psychological health and safety. Veterans can and often do struggle with transition out of combat and the military, even if they don't meet each of these criteria. And there are other psychological conditions that service members, veterans, and their families may be experiencing, depression, anxiety, and other things that we'll talk about. We'll be discussing all of these and more in future episodes of the show. And now for the introductory segment of the show. You're listening to Inside the Military Mind, brought to you by Family Care Center. Our family, helping your family online at fcsprings.com. And now for today's segment in which I'll be talking a little bit more about the background of the show, myself, and what we plan on doing for future episodes. 
And so for this first episode of Inside the Military Mind, we kind of wanted to give you an overview of myself as the host, uh, but also a little bit about what the show is about, what we want to talk about, and sort of the goals of what we want to do. So first off, about me. So I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer. I served in the Army for 22 years. I'm not originally from Colorado, like many of us. Most of us who have served here decided to retire here. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri, and I joined the military a week after I graduated high school. I did choose to join the Army Reserves for about a year uh, because my, my father, who happened to be a Vietnam veteran, uh, thought that his son was a little too smart to join the Army. Uh, and this was also at a period of time after the Gulf War and before the, um, uh, before the Global War on Terror. Uh, and so this was really the reason why I was joining was because my parents simply didn't have enough money for college. Uh, and I ended up joining the reserves and sleeping in my dad's basement for a year before I realized that what I really wanted to do was the excitement, adventure, and really wild things. And so I joined the military, I joined the active army, uh, and my first duty station was Germany. Uh, it's a great duty station for a, a young man uh, just first out of, uh, first away from home, first time away from home. Uh, but uh, my time in Germany was in the mid-90s, and really that was about when the uh, Dayton Peace Accords occurred, um, and my unit was one of the first ones to go to Bosnia. So Bosnia was my first deployment uh, way back in the last century in the mid-90s, uh, and uh, right after that is when I re-enlisted and I served for three years in the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, so th for those listeners who have been in the military, you know that uh, a different type of breed of soldier uh, is required to jump out of airplanes. Um, I won't necessarily say they were perfectly good airplanes, but they were airplanes nonetheless. Uh, but uh, as a young NCO at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, serving the 82nd Airborne Division is where I really realized that I wanted to make the military my career. I got married while I was there, met my wife, uh, and then we, um, she became pregnant with our daughter. Uh, and then we re-enlisted to return to Germany. So I went back to Germany for my, uh, my third enlistment and uh, was in Germany on 9-11. Uh, and this is something I think for many of us who have who straddled our service between pre 9/11 and post 9/11, that question is where were you on 9/11? For me, 9/11 happens in the afternoon. 9/11 was a um, it, it happened around three in the afternoon. I was actually training someone to uh, take over my new position, uh, and I ran into another NCO in the hallway. And this this guy was a little bit of a joker, uh, and he came down the hallway and said, "Ah, a plane flew into." To the World Trade Center. I didn't believe him very much. Uh, but then, of course, uh, when I did uh, go into my office and we turned on the radio and we found out that uh, the, the towers had actually been hit uh, and were actually listening whenever the plane flew into the Pentagon. And so I was still had about a year left in Germany after 9-11, uh, and my unit was really responsible for setting up a lot of the logistics bridge there in Kaiserslautern, Germany. Uh, and and transitioning units into Afghanistan there at the end of 2001 uh, and then going on to 2002. Uh, after that, uh, my goal was to, like many of us uh, who were planning on, who were doing this for a career, uh, my goal was to go to war. Uh, that was sort of what we had trained for. I'd been in the Army for about 10 years at that point, and I planned on making it a career. Uh, the Army in its infinite wisdom, when I called up my branch manager and said that I wanted to volunteer for something, uh, they said, we'll give you something to volunteer for. And they sent me on recruiting duty for three years instead of sending me to combat the way I wanted to. 
Um, I know there's a lot of uh, jokes around recruiting. Um, it was, uh, uh, and it was very difficult. I, I often describe it as uh, I trained 10 years for the Super Bowl, and then I found myself in the front office in a sales position. Um, I was in recruiting whenever the invasion of Iraq occurred, uh, and I had the responsibility of enlisting young men and women in the Army um, to, to fight a war that I hadn't fought in yet. Uh, the beneficial thing, I think, was that I was recruiting outside of a military installation. I was recruiting outside of Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, and it was very hard to uh, sort of pull the wool over anybody's eyes because everybody knew what was going on. I like to say um, that it kept an honest man honest. Uh, I couldn't BS a, uh, a young man or woman who was looking at joining the military because then they would just uh, talk to their father or their uncle or their aunt uh, who was already serving and, and get the real deal. Uh, so after recruiting duty was when my family and I were assigned here to Fort Carson, Colorado. We got here at Fort Carson in 2006. And 2006 uh, was really as the, the units uh, were starting to ramp up for the surge. Um, we were deployed to Iraq, to Baghdad, as part of 2nd Infantry Division. So those of you who served realize that 2nd Infantry Division had a pit stop in between Korea and Fort Lewis and, and had a little bit of a, a time here at Fort Carson. So I was uh, in Baghdad with 2nd Brigade, 2nd ID. Uh, we were part of the surge. We went over on 12-month orders and ended up uh, being extended three months. And so we were one of the first 15-month um, units uh, that served. Returned back from that uh, and then was uh, back in Afghanistan in 2008. Uh, by that time, 2-2 had reflagged to 4th Brigade, 4th Infantry Division. I ended up uh, doing another tour in Regional Command East in Afghanistan with the uh, 4th Infantry Division. Uh, and then ultimately ended up doing another tour in Afghanistan in 2011-2012. Uh, uh, about that time, as I knew that my military career was ending, uh, I felt that uh, I should find a really nice assignment to sort of ride off into the sunset. Uh, and again, the, the Army and its infinite wisdom when, uh, decided to give me something that I'd been wanting since the 82nd Airborne Division uh, and had me jumping out of airplanes again with 10th Special Forces Group. Uh, jumping out of airplanes when you're 39 is a lot different than jumping out of airplanes when you're 25. Um, and jumping out of airplanes in uh, Colorado is a little bit different than jumping out of airplanes in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, but I do feel uh, really grateful for the time that I spent in 10th Special Forces Group and their support element. Um, and even had the opportunity to go to North Africa with them uh, before ultimately uh, deciding to retire in 2014. Uh, and, and if you listen to that sort of, um, uh, that sort of story, uh, each individual service member has a story. Um, some of the things may be common, some of the things may be different, um, but that really illustrates a little bit about um, where I went through in, in uh, my military service. Um, total of five combat and operational deployments over 22 years. So that's the military side of things. Um, the other thing, after my retirement, I became a clinical mental health counselor. So I was not a mental health professional when I was in the military. I was in logistics. It was sort of the, the job that I did. Uh, but it was really the leadership opportunities that I had as a platoon sergeant and as first sergeant that, that really drove me. But a lot of times people want to know, how did I get to become a clinical mental health counselor uh, rather than being a platoon sergeant or a first sergeant in the Army? So since everybody loves an or 
origin story to be able to figure out how I got to be from that first sergeant to the mental health counselor. We then have to go back to Iraq in 2007. I was a company operations NCO uh, for a logistics unit that was serving units in Northeast Baghdad. And uh, I had one of my NCOs who had just completed his associate's degree. He came into the office and he was very proud and he was showing me his, his, uh, his diploma. Uh, and he asked me what my degree was in. By that time, I was a sergeant first class, uh, and I told him in no uncertain terms that my degree was in none of his business uh, because uh, at that point, again, my focus was on the military. I'd taken some, uh, some courses, some college courses, but at that time, I wasn't thinking about college. And to be honest, seven years out from retirement, I wasn't necessarily thinking about what I was going to be when I grew up. Um, my idea, if I thought about it at all, that I was going to be one of those high school teachers maybe in English or history uh, that you could derail by asking about your old combat experiences so you wouldn't get any homework. Um, but ultimately, uh, I decided at that point that I wanted to go back to college, obviously started thinking about what was going to happen after the end of my military career. Um, even at that point, I wasn't thinking about being a mental health counselor. I was a little interested in psychology. But really what happened was uh, when I got to uh, – when we got back to Fort Carson after Iraq, um, we had to – the unit went through reintegration training. And this was the kind of group training uh, in which uh, everyone in the, the unit came together. The spouses were there and you sort of had these conversations about not drinking and driving and don't kicking the dog and don't yell at the neighbors. Um, but one of the breakout sessions would happen to be led by a local mental health counselor um, who was the head of the Colorado Springs Vet Center at the time. And she was a retired Air Force officer. Uh, and one of the things that she happened to say sort of in between uh, some of her conversation was, if anyone in this audience is interested in psychology, consider a career in the mental health field because there are not enough combat veterans in the clinical mental health field. Um, at that time, that was sort of a, a stone that dropped into my mind uh, because it was something that I felt that uh, uh, that was correct. I, I saw that the service members and veterans of this generation were going to need that support. Um, I, I saw the look in their eyes. Uh, we had just been through a 15-month tour in Iraq, uh, and, and we, it had been very difficult. At about the same time, so this was 2007 or 2008, uh, I saw an article in the paper uh, that uh, Colorado Springs in the 4th Judicial District was starting a brand new veterans court. Uh, and so the veterans court, um, we hope to be able to have guests on in the future talking about this amazing program. Um, but the veterans court is a program that will help veterans who happen to be in, uh, come in contact with law, happen to be in, in, you know, end up in the back of the police car find themselves in front of a judge for some of these reasons about some of these psychological impacts of, of the military service. Um, and so at the same time that I was uh, transitioning out of combat and preparing to go to Afghanistan, El Paso County was developing the Veterans Trauma Court. Uh, and I also said to myself, those young men and women are going to need somebody who understands their military service. Um, they're already involved in the judicial system, uh, which is going to be difficult enough. They're going to need somebody as a mental health counselor who is going to be uh, someone who, who understands their military service. And so that's really what got me started on my path to become a clinical mental health counselor. Um, I, I, I started my schooling while I was on my 
while I was on active duty, um, my second tour in Afghanistan, uh, I was actually taking uh, online courses as much as I could. Um, one recommendation I have is never try to take a 400-level neuropsychology course while you're leading patrols in Afghanistan. Um, if I had it to do over again, I probably wouldn't do that again. Uh, we'd come off patrol, and a lot of my troops would go play Call of Duty, and I'd have to go crash out an 11-page paper uh, on the biological impact of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but through that deployment, my second Afghanistan deployment, um, and then through North Africa, uh, I completed my associates, my bachelors. Uh, and this is one of the benefits of, of being in the military through tuition assistance, uh, that I had completed most of my master's degree uh, before, I had, uh, before I had retired. Uh, and then upon retirement, uh, I was able to start working with the, the Family Care Center. It, the incarnation at the time was the Warrior Support Center, uh, which ultimately, to bring things full circle, um, was where we started to um, we started to work with the Veterans Court, where we were providing the primary non-VA support uh, for the Veterans Court. Um, and, and again, all of these different things really reaffirmed to me the, the need uh, of mental health counselors with lived experience. And not only that, I'm the son and nephew of uh, Vietnam veterans. My father and four of his brothers all served in Vietnam between 1967 uh, and 1970. And so I knew what it was like to grow up with, uh, with someone who had the impact of, mental, of the impact of combat and mental health. Uh, and so I really decided that after leaving the military, I wanted to support those service members. So I got my degree in clinical mental health counseling. And so really it's a, and so really it's a matter of the combination of lived experience as a service member, uh, but also the clinical training as a behavioral health professional and really where my role is now with the Family Care Center. So that's a little bit about myself. Now a little bit about what we want to talk about on the show. We want to be able to talk about mental health. We want to talk about mental wellness. Words have meaning, whether we call it mental health, mental illness, behavioral health. The Army tried to call it combat stress for a while. The words that we called it really didn't matter. It really means talking about the difficult things that happen and the impact that it has on our emotion. One of the things that one of the things that is challenging around mental health is there's a certain culture in the military about not wanting to talk about it, that this is some secret that we need to hold. And one of the goals of this show is we want to be able to reduce the stigma against seeking support. I often describe this as we don't go through all of these four or five deployments that, that we have or more uh, for many service members. We don't go through them without getting a couple dents in the fender. Uh, the car is not as, as shiny and new as it was when it first came in. And sometimes worse things happen and we need some support with that. So really one of the goals is to be able to have people start asking these questions, understanding more about this, because we, we, we simply avoid those things that we don't understand. The other thing that we want to do is develop awareness, um, help individuals, help veterans, service members, veterans, and their families realize that they're not alone in this, that this isn't something that they're dealing with on their own. Uh, sometimes mental health concerns or some of these experiences can be extremely isolating, um, and that isolation can cause things to get worse. So we want to be able to develop some awareness, but we also want to provide some solutions. We want to bring on guests who can describe things that are happening, but also give you the, the understanding that there are things that we can do to be able to address these, uh, these conditions. 
You see, there is a psychological impact of military service. The military is an inherently dangerous occupation. It is similar to other dangerous occupations, uh, such as uh, law enforcement or uh, or the firefighting service or things like that. Um, and like those first responder uh, communities, the military is a separate culture. Everything that is, defines a culture, the military is that. We have our own way of dressing. We have our own way of speaking. We have our own language. I speak acronym fluently. Uh, and so this is one of the things that I often describe it as I went to go live in Ireland for 22 years, and now I have to come back and learn how to live in Colorado. Yeah, we speak English, but it's a different type of English. It's a different mindset. And so for many service members, it can be a challenge in transitioning from the military uh, into non-military culture. The other thing that I'd like to touch on is the fact that there are common psychological challenges that some veterans experience. Um, a lot of times when people think about veteran mental health, they think about post-traumatic stress disorder, that if there is a pie, that is the pie, or at least half of the pie. Uh, so post-traumatic stress disorder is something that uh, um, is many people think of. And it's why during the insight segment, I wanted to touch on PTSD in the very beginning uh, to be able to give people an understanding about what it might be and what it isn't. Another thing that many people think about in, when it comes to uh, military and veteran mental health is traumatic brain injury. This is something that has really gotten a lot of focus over the last several years. And uh, the, the instances of traumatic brain injury have increased over the years uh, because our equipment has gotten better, our medical treatment has gotten better. In previous conflicts, uh, there were certain kind of injuries that would have been fatal that people are surviving now, but now we're understanding that traumatic brain injury uh, is, is a condition. Now, just like post-traumatic stress disorder is a, a behavioral response to trauma, the trauma in traumatic brain injury is a physical trauma to the brain. So I bruise my elbow, I bruise my brain, I have nerve damage in my leg, I have, I have nerve damage, so to speak, in my brain. Um, another thing that many people uh, experience, um, and, and maybe it isn't widely discussed, but it is widely known, uh, is addiction. And I am talking about substances, so substance addiction, alcohol and opiates most specifically. Uh, the opioid epidemic in, occurring in the veteran population started in the military uh, with, uh, with prescription painkillers. Um, addiction to uh, things like uh, uh, events, adrenaline, uh, things like that. And so uh, a lot of times people will use addictions to be able to cope with some of the stress. And the other thing, and another common and another common thing that we talk about when we talk about mental health is emotional dysregulation emotional dysregulation related to depression related to anxiety post traumatic Post-traumatic stress disorder does have an emotional component to it, absolutely, but there are things in the military that aren't traumatic, but then can develop depression, uh, anxiety, and, and anger responses. And so those four things, post-traumatic stress disorder, TBI, addiction, and emotional dysregulation, those are diagnosable mental health conditions. Those are things uh, that are actually... Uh, it, it's the medical model of mental health, that these are conditions that there are medications for. These are conditions that uh, uh, insurance uh, can pay for. These are conditions, honestly, that the Department of Veterans Affairs can compensate for. Um, and so if we think about those conditions, um, those are very important. And then there's some other things that, uh, that veterans experience, maybe some less psychological challenges. 
One of them is lack of purpose and meaning in post-military life. When we were in the military, uh, we had very important jobs. We might have been very small cogs in a very large machine, but we realized we were very important cogs. And a lot of veterans that I work with explain that they have a lack of purpose and meaning. They don't feel as fulfilled in their post-military jobs as they did when they were in the military. Another common thing that is starting to emerge is something that's called moral injury. Uh, and so if PTSD is, and it's much more complicated than this, but if PTSD is an injury of the behavior and traumatic brain injury is a physical injury of the brain, then moral injury has been described as an injury of the soul. What we believe to be right and wrong, true and untrue, Good and bad in our world has been fundamentally changed by our time in the military. Moral injury isn't something that uh, all service members and veterans experience, but it is something that is linked to but really seen as separate from PTSD. Um, it has to do with things like survivor's guilt, how I feel, how I describe what happened to me when I was in the military. Uh, another common thing that, we, uh, that we're going to be discussing is the fact that uh, uh, how do we fulfill our needs? And so needs fulfillment. Many veterans can get frustrated in post-military life when how do we get our needs met? When I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, I didn't have to worry about where my food came from. There was somebody whose job it was to be able to provide that. Um, my job was to provide something for someone else. Um, if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and those bottom rungs of, of our basic physiological and safety needs, those things are provided when you're in the military. When I got here to Fort Carson, the, the Army handed me a key to my on-post house. When we decided we wanted to move off post, they gave us money to to do that. And so that's one of the things in the military, a lot of our needs are met so that we can do other more complicated things. When we get out of the military, we have to figure out how to meet those needs in different ways, which for me, it was nearly a quarter of a century uh, before I had to, to actually meet some needs. Um, I can tell you that I, I had one tie that I tied one way for 20 something years, uh, and I had to learn how to dress for success. Uh, uh, my last job interview, I think, was for a pizza place before now I'm in my 40s and I'm actually going to, to do a professional job interview. My resume was my uh, enlisted record brief. Um, and so these are the kind of things when people think about transition, we have to learn how to do things differently. Uh, but there's also a, a matter of a mastery paradox. We can master a lot of things in one area, but have difficulty in another area. I was speaking to a Marine one time who he was a recon Marine, and he said that I'm comfortable speaking to CIA station chiefs and three-star generals about intelligence in the area, but then I go home and I can't figure out how to manage a rental contract. It, it, for some of them, it's almost like forgetting how to tie their shoes. And so that can breed a lot of frustration when it comes to trying to address those things. And then finally, relationships. Our mental health impacts our relationships, and our relationships impact our mental health. Um, our relationships mean our peers. It's very difficult to find friends as an adult anyway. Um, but when you aren't familiar, aren't comfortable around people, it's even more difficult to find peers. Um, relationships can get strained. I'm in, and I'm talking romantic relationships, partnerships, um, uh, intra, uh, intragenerational relationships, like with our parents or our children, all of these things can be challenged um, by some of the experiences. And all of these things intersect with each other. And this is why we really need to look at a comprehensive mental health for service members and veterans.
So those four things, lack of purpose and meaning, moral injury, needs fulfillment and relationships, uh, there's not a diagnosis for those things. Um, there's not a pill that can make you feel like you have a more fulfilled life. Um, there's, there's not an insurance that you, can, um, that you can bill to be able to learn how to meet new needs in uh, old needs in new ways. Um, and so that really is now emerging into what is being called transition stress. So all of that together are things that we need to be able to understand when it comes to service members, veterans, and their families. Now consider somebody who has more than one uh, challenge in these areas. So consider uh, a young service member who has untreated PTSD who may have uh, undiagnosed traumatic brain injury, who's using alcohol or other substances to cope, who either feels angry or anxious or, or depressed all the time. They feel like they don't have as much purpose and meaning in their life. They feel guilty about the things that they did when they were in the military. They can't get their needs met because they're homeless or they're unemployed uh, and their relationships aren't very strong because anybody they have close to them, they've either alienated or those people have left. If all of those things are together, the more of those things that are the worst that, that are a challenge, uh, the worst things can be for those people. And that's what we want to avoid is what happens when th these things break down. See, a lot of time we're talking about suicide in the military and veteran population and the military family population. But suicide is a lagging indicator of these underlying issues uh, that, have, uh, that haven't worked. And so uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about on this show is uh, each of these things a different aspect of these things? Uh, we're going to be talking about how these things impact military families. We're going to be talking about how they impact the community. We're going to be helping people understand what these things are about. And ultimately, uh, we do want to be able to save lives. Suicide is significant. Uh, and, and a lot of the work that I do outside of this space is working on suicide uh, in El Paso County. The impact of suicide on service members and veterans is significant. On average, El Paso County loses about one service member or veteran a week to suicide. There are a number of different efforts going on at the federal, state, and local level on the federal, state, and local level to address service member, veteran, military, family suicide. Uh, and there are a number of partners that are addressing that in the community. Uh, we're really trying to take a public health approach to suicide. And many people might think about, as COVID is happening, some of the public health conversations around that. But really, we're talking about the same kind of public health approach uh, that causes us to use seatbelts more often or to reduce drunk driving or to reduce um, domestic violence. And so really taking a a community problem and addressing it in a number of different ways. El Paso County has a lot of resources, uh, especially for service members, veterans, and their families. But really, when we're talking about a public health approach to suicide prevention, we want to be able to talk about creating a protective environment in which individuals are not getting get are not going to get into a suicidal crisis. This means creating protective factors. Um, these protective factors include uh, increasing connectedness among service members, veterans, and their families. Uh, connectedness, a lack of isolation, um, ensuring that veterans feel like they're connected to their community. Um, these are all things that reduce the isolation that can cause people to think that they're alone and cause suicide to be an option. And so genuine connectedness saves lives. And so if we can ensure that veterans are connected to each other or they have meaningful things to do, then they're likely going to be able to avoid getting into a suicidal crisis. 
Another thing that we have to consider, which is based a little bit on what I was talking about before, um, is ensuring that we have financial stability for service members, veterans, and their families. Less or about 50% of the deaths by suicide are as a result of a diagnosable mental health condition. Uh, sometimes it, a lot of times, it has to do with relationships or financial stress. And so we talk about economic stability. We talk about ensuring veterans have good paying jobs, ensuring that they have financial security, ensuring that they're housed. Um, because again, going back to that needs fulfillment, um, the more likely uh, that someone doesn't have these needs met, uh, the more likely it is that they're going to find themselves in crisis. But also that means that those individuals that are providing these services, such as employment, such as housing, they're also preventing suicide for service members, veterans, and their families by preventing them from getting into a crisis. The other thing that we have to do is talk about uh, education and awareness around suicide prevention, uh, making sure that individuals understand uh, maybe what some of the signs are related to suicide, um, to understand how big of a problem it is, how big of a challenge it is in our community. Uh, and so organizations that work with veterans or have interaction with veterans, uh, that they have some basic suicide prevention awareness and training. And so these are the kind of things that if we get these things in place, that will keep someone from getting into a crisis. The other thing that we have to talk about uh, is if someone is in a crisis, how do we ensure that that crisis isn't fatal? So how do we ensure that that service member or veteran is able to get the care that they need, whether that is care at the Department of Veterans Affairs or care in other ways? Uh, we need to be able to reduce barriers to care. We need to be able to make sure that service members, veterans, and their families have the ability to access care for somebody who understands their culture, going back to that culture conversation. Um, a lot of times we talk about service member and veteran care, um, but one of the challenges is that there is less culturally competent care for military and veteran spouses and children than there may be for their service member or veteran counterparts. That Marine Corps veteran who served six years and, and did two tours in, in Iraq, um, at least they have the VA. Their spouse or their children who may also be experiencing some challenges related to the military service or how their veteran reacted to it, they don't have the same resources. And so providing the best access to care that we possibly can uh, is a critical part of making sure that the, a suicidal crisis isn't fatal. The other thing that we have to talk about is lethal means safety. Um, the means in which uh, veterans, service members and veterans and their families take their own life is also critical. It's a way that we can interrupt that cycle. Um, the two biggest things that we have to talk about related to lethal means safety um, is firearm safety and medication safety. Over 60% of the veteran deaths in 2019 were as a result of firearms. Now, we're not saying that we're going to violate anybody's rights. And we're not saying that veterans shouldn't have guns. We're saying that we're going to have safety, that we're going to have protection instead of control. In the same way that we put our seatbelt on in case we get into an accident so the accident isn't fatal, that if someone is in crisis, we make sure that either the firearms or the medication are secure so that the crisis isn't fatal. We have to be able to have these conversations about lethal means safety related to crises so that we can reduce the number of military and veteran deaths by suicide. And finally, we need to talk about postvention. A lot of people know about suicide prevention and suicide intervention, meaning that we're going to stop somebody who is imminently in crisis. But postvention, especially in those of us who are working in this space, postvention is uh, the consideration of what happens 
after a death by suicide. Uh, the research shows that if someone is directly exposed to suicide, say a partner or a spouse, a family member, that that individual is at greater likelihood of dying by suicide or, or experiencing a suicidal crisis. So how do we support those people who have lost someone to suicide? And how do we support those people who have experienced a, a, a suicidal crisis, have made a suicide attempt, um, but did not die through that attempt? That's another aspect of postvention um, that we need to be able to provide uh, some support around. Again, research shows that if somebody has a suicide attempt, does not die and gets the care, they have better life outcomes three to five years farther on down the line than they would have if they hadn't gotten care. So this is really the public health approach that many in the community are, are addressing. It's not just a mental health problem. I, as a mental health professional, if I had the solution, the problem would be solved by now. So it's not just a clinical solution, nor is it just a community solution. It's really a combination of the two. The goal of this show and the goal of those of us in the community who are working with behavioral health uh, is to bridge the gap between those who are serving, those who have served, and those who want to support them. You're listening to Inside the Military Mind, brought to you by Family Care Center. Our family, helping your family. Online at fcsprings.com. Each week, I'll be sharing a community resource with you during the Receive Support segment. There are hundreds of organizations in the Pikes Peak region that support service members, veterans, and their families, and each week I will be highlighting a different organization that may be useful to you. This week's community resource is the Homefront Military Network. The mission of the Homefront Military Network is to connect service members, veterans, and their families to resources offered by trusted community partners and to provide emergency financial assistance. They help the military-affiliated population navigate support systems through web-based and call-in information and assistance to find the services that are the best fit and follows alongside the individuals every step of the way. If people connect with them, they can expect to receive information about the many resources available for service members, veterans, and their families, help for those who are overwhelmed and don't know where to start, long-term personal and customized assistance to meet multiple and complex needs, and coordinated support to help service members, veterans, and military family members thrive. Through the Homefront Military Network, members of the military population can receive financial assistance, including one-time emergency financial bridge support for eligible individuals and families, help with rent, utilities, and transportation needs on a case-by-case -case basis, connections to financial coaching, benefits assistance, and other resources to help individuals become self-sufficient. Another program of the Homefront Military Network is Welcome Home Heroes, first established by the Homefront Cares. Welcome Home Heroes is an important morale builder that shows returning service members that our community welcomes them and appreciates them. Homefront Military Network and several partner volunteer groups meet every plane that arrives in Colorado Springs carrying soldiers returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. Thanks to a partnership with McDonald's, they hand every returning service member a cheeseburger and a soda, greet them, and thank them for their service. This program also supports welcoming ceremonies for service members and families, unit activities, and other functions that are not readily covered by existing military or nonprofit infrastructure. Because of Welcome Home Heroes, more than 193,000 troops have been welcomed since 2003, including yours truly on several occasions. While some listeners may not be familiar with the name of the organization, Many are probably familiar with the people running it because the organization has been around in several different forms for a number of years. Before there was the Homefront Military Network, there was the Peak Military Care Network and the Homefront Cares. These two organizations shared a similar mission, to serve those who have served. 
The two organizations officially merged and became the Homefront Military Network in January of 2020. Their merger effort capitalized on the long-term collaborative working relationship between the two organizations to streamline access to key services. As one organization, they connect military service members, veterans, and their families to resources offered by trusted community partners and provide emergency financial assistance. Peak Military Care Network, whose governance was initiated in 2013, was an umbrella organization that facilitated collaboration with 47 partner agencies, as well as local military installations and Veterans Affairs staff. They provide education and training to their partners to ensure that they understood military and veteran culture and the needs of our military and veteran community. They also provide information and assistance to individuals and families in case coordination to help ensure access to critical services. The aspects that Peak Military Care Network brought to the merger was that they provided information and assistance, navigation, and case management support to help identify the needs and connect individuals to services. They helped solidify connections to the right resources, whether it was employment, child care, health care, behavioral health, financial assistance, etc., so that people wouldn't get frustrated, give up, and fall into crisis. The Homefront Cares, which was established in 2004, provided an emergency financial bridge and responsive support to Colorado's military members, veterans, and their families. They served veterans and their families throughout all of Colorado and had strong connections throughout the state with other nonprofit and referral agencies, military installations, veterans affairs, and other veteran service organizations. Their caseworkers provided referral services to many of these agencies, ensuring that their clients received financial, family, and emotional counseling and services, even when they did not qualify for the Homefront Cares financial support. By combining these two organizations, the benefits of both of them are now provided to those that the Homefront Military Network serves. In order to connect to the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. Call 719-577-7417 to talk to a case manager between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Mondays through Fridays and email info at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org for information and assistance. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It would be great to hear your feedback. I'd also like to answer any questions that you may have or know what you would like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send an email to militarymind at fccsprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for informational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I am not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed in this episode brings up any concerns for you, it is highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life.
Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.